It's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. It is the day after the presidential election. I mention that because I'm going to talk about an article in Christianity Today that was a political article, and I don't want people to think that I'm doing that and try to order to influence your vote. So all the votes are in, if not yet counted. As of this recording, there has been no officially declared winner. And I have to tell you, I went to bed last night around 9.20. I was actually really tired because I hadn't slept well the couple nights before. And I just didn't watch any of the re- any of the returns. I just put my phone on airplane mode so it wouldn't be blowing up with text. And I just got a really great night's sleep. And I woke up in the morning and said, huh, I didn't miss anything. And, you know, there's a, an issue of the masculinist I did. I think it's issue 29. It's called the testosterone-cortisol ratio. Testosterone, obviously, kind of the, the um, uh, masculine hormone. Cortisol is a stress hormone. It's not all bad, but when you have chronically elevated cortisol levels, it can be very bad for your health. And one of the things I like to do is I like to say I like to keep my testosterone up, keep my cortisol down. And one of the ways that I manage my cortisol level is by trying to regulate a little bit the kind of social media exposure and stuff that I subject myself to. And I just said, you know what? I don't need to watch all this election stuff and get worked up about it. I can't control it. Uh, There's nothing I can do. Why don't I just get a good night's sleep and wake up in the morning and see who won or, or see what's going on? And so that's what I did. And so I see people going crazy right now. You know, my, uh, you know, what I try to do and what I might even suggest you take a look at is how can you manage your social media to just regulate how much stress you want or don't want? I mean, sometimes you want that hit of juice, right? So sometimes I want to jump into the fray because it gets me fired up when I need it. Other times I, I want to tune it down. But I think a lot of people are harming their own health by just being too much into the the, the social media world. So I decided to take another break today and uh, record this podcast. So uh, the article I'm referring to is in Christianity Today magazine. It was by Tim Dalrymple, who is the CEO of Christianity Today. He's not the editor. I guess you would say he's more like the publisher uh, of the magazine. And he was talking about the two different tribes of Christians when it comes to um politics. And he divides Christians into two categories, or certainly evangelicals, what uh, he calls essentially the pro-Trump evangelicals, who he calls the church regnant, and then the anti-Trump evangelicals, which he calls the church remnant. And he himself puts himself admittedly in the latter category. And obviously the whole article is, you know, slanted in that direction in that he's sort of critical of the Trump people and, you know, more praising of his own tribe. You know, that's fine. What I would suggest is Ignore all that and just think about the two, diff- two different tribes. I, I like articles like this, and I like phenomenon like this that divide people in ways you would not ordinarily expect. So I think pre-Trump, 
you would have said conservatives are over here, liberals were over there. Well, when Trump came along, he really exposed a split inside conservatism that was, I would argue, already there. The people who are never Trumpers, who've always hated Trump, are people who were different in some respects from the people who went with Trump. And I'm not saying that's the only cleavage, but it's something that's there. And I don't think it's any accident, for example, that the people who are very never Trump and conservatism are people who were very, very, very heavy neocon, you know, pro-war types. Um, You know, David French is a good example. He wrote an article. I don't know if for sure he's... Uh, still believes this, but a few years ago, he wrote an article, um, this was during the Trump era, saying, yeah, the Iraq war was morally justified, uh, even though there were no WMDs. So it remained very strong on that point. But it exposed something that was not there. I think the same thing's true here. You know, with, with Trump exposed this sort of rift or division between tribes or camps in evangelicalism. And I think it was something that was already there, but people just didn't notice it or think a lot about it. I can't remember exactly who it was, but somebody uh, on Twitter was talking about how these people really represented two different lineages of evangelicalism that were sort of grouped together and they often interacted with each other, uh, but they didn't necessarily all share the same beliefs or heritages. And now Trump has kind of come in and he's divided that in a different way. I think another great um, division that we've seen within people you wouldn't expect to have division uh, is the mask mandates. Um, So uh, what you see, for example, is a a guy like Doug Wilson and his group extremely, extremely, extremely anti-mask. And then there's a group of people like, say, Tim Bailey. If you know him, go to warhornmedia.com if you don't know who he is. And they have been not necessarily pro-mask, but are like, hey, we need to be in submission to authority and we need to follow these things. Ordinarily, you would have thought that Doug and Tim were going to be on the same side of the issue, but it wasn't. So there's a rift even inside these sort of ultra-conservative people, and it's exposing a kind of division into people in terms of their view towards authorities um, that might not have been evident before. And so I always like to see things I mean, not that these things are always good, but it's always good to have a light shone on something that was not there before. And so I would say one little trick to doing what I do is to keep your eye out for things that don't cut exactly the way that you expect them to, especially in how they divide people you might otherwise have have grouped together. And then ask yourself, what does that tell us? What are we learning from that? Anyhow, none of that is what this blog post is about, or this um, blog post, what this um, podcast is about. I've been doing this series on urban world, urban church, and uh, what I want to talk about today is the fact that the urban church has really failed at its stated mission of cultural influence, and I was really struck that Timothy Dalrymple uh, of Christianity Today basically admitted and made this very point. So again, he's writing as a never Trump um, evangelical, puts himself in the church remnant. I'm going to read you some excerpts from his article. He writes, unlike the church regnant, the church remnant tends to come from places where Christianity is not the reigning cultural or political authority. Of course, these are generalizations, but the church remnant trends younger, 
more diverse, and more urban than the church regnant. Members of the church remnant are more likely to live on the margins of power. For the church remnant, the kingdom of God is less about the acquisition of power than the divestment of power. This makes the church remnant more sanguine about the loss of cultural and political influence. Now, this was not one continuous quote. Um, I pasted together a couple little things. So I'm going to drop in the show notes a link to the article, uh, and you will be able to read the whole thing in context. But you can see here, he's really saying, the church remnant, which disproportionately urban, young, etc., is not about power, which is interesting, interesting observation right there. Now, somebody on Twitter kind of called him out. He said, look, how can you say that when you contain a disproportionate share of high socioeconomic status evangelicals? And here is what Dalrymple put back on Twitter. And again, I'll drop a link to this tweet in the show notes. He said, my point had less to do with the socioeconomic status and more to do with the possession of political cultural influence, thus remnant and regnant. Having been an evangelical in the Bay Area, Boston, the New York City area, etc., I can tell you that evangelicals do not have a lot of influence there. Now I'll repeat the last sentence. This is Tim Dalrymple again. Having been an evangelical in the Bay Area, Boston, the New York City area, etc., I can tell you that evangelicals do not have a lot of influence there. And I think this is a pretty open and honest admission, and he's right about that, right? This is a guy, he's lived in multiple of these markets, he has degrees from Harvard and Stanford, he's at the center, and he says that they don't have influence. And I think contra Dalrymple, um, if you look at the mission statements of these urban churches, you often very much do hear language about transformation, about influence. They'll talk about cultural renewal in the city. They'll talk about wholeness in the city. They'll talk about transformation in the city. Just, just look at the mission statements of some of these things. Not all of them do, but don't. But I think it's very clear that they aspire to change the culture, to influence the culture in these places. And in fact, if you listen to how they pitch themselves, that is a very big part of how they pitch themselves. They say, as I said earlier, and which is in fact actually true, we are strategically located in the centers of cultural and economic influence in the country. And if Christianity is not present here, is not engaged here, is not having an influence here, then that's going to be bad because this is what is going to radiate down to the whole rest of the country. And so you want Christianity uh, to be present in these places. So again, this is really drawing on the work of James Davison Hunter in To Change the World when he notes how culture changes from the top down, changes through networks of elites at the center, um, not through essentially bottom-up type cultural change. And so that is an important thing, and that is really a strategic point. And yet what we see here, and what is in fact actually true, is that these urban church people have not had any material influence on the culture. Maybe you disagree. If so, I, I would be uh, very interested to read more about that. There are definitely being big changes in the city, right? So for example, the city sort of came back as a place young educated hip millennials wanted to live, 
But I'm not sure that the church had anything to do with that or with the declines in crime in city during the 1990s, um, etc. It's a little difficult to put your finger on exactly what it is that they've done. What have they accomplished? In fact, what I would say is it is more likely exactly the opposite that has occurred in that the world, the culture, has been able to have a profound influence over the church by virtue of these people who decided to engage with the world on the world's terms at essentially the world's center. And, you know, this is one of the things that I saw right away when I read uh, To Change the World by Hunter. I said, I see it. This is the recipe that these guys are using not to change the world, but to change the church. These urban church people have been able to have profound influence and obtain profound power over the world of evangelicalism, leveraging the cultural connections that they have made in the center. And as we can see here, they have been able to shift a significant percentage of people uh, in that movement from thinking differently about politics, differently about the world. And so much of what is driving, uh, uh, you know, a, a good chunk of the evangelical world today is coming out of the cultural influence over the church that these people has had. I would dare say they've had profoundly more cultural influence, more cultural power within the church uh, than they ever had um, on the world and again, if you look at the faithful presence um, idea of Hunter, where you just kind of go in and, you know, again, seek shalom, seek flourishing, and all these different domains of society, including elite domains, it's not exactly clear what that does um, to really change things. Certainly not in any way that goes against the core value system of um, the, those institutions. And again, I find it really interesting that Dalrymple here more or less just says directly, right? We don't have a lot of influence. We haven't made much of a dent. We don't have any power. We are essentially on the margins. And I think that's exactly right. So it's worth considering the next time you hear one of these really triumphalistic strategery type discussions about the urban church and why it's important to be in cities and all that stuff, just ask yourself, you know, well, what have you actually accomplished in terms of bringing wholeness and cultural renewal um, to the place? Well, you know, what is your accomplishment? How have you, what, what have you actually done? And I think the reality is they've built great institutions and they've had a lot of success in those institutions and they probably served the Christian population there very well. They've probably also done some very good work uh, helping the poor and, uh, you know, helping those in need and things like that. So there's a lot that has really been done there. I think it truly in terms of, um, you know, generating fruit for the kingdom. I mean, just for example, you know, uh, Keller's Redeemer Presbyterian, many, many, many people became Christian in that church in the 1990s. They had a, a massive ability to to bring people into Christ uh, they also, you know, started Hope for New York, which does all this charitable work. They created a counseling center. So they've done a ton of stuff that I think is legitimately fruit-bearing uh, in, in that respect. So it's not like they've accomplished nothing, that they're all loser Christians, etc. Definitely not that at all. But what I would say is the idea that they have influenced the culture 
uh, of their city, much less the country, by engaging there, I think you would have to say to date that mission has not been a success. So thank you for listening and more next time.